Hi, my name is Leo WT, and you have found your way to the Conversations Podcast. Conversations exist to create spiritually minded conversations about life. We desire to create safe space for dialogue and community. We desire to come together regularly and intentionally to generate conversations about life, belief, and the intersection of the two. Everyone is welcome at the conversation. My name's Leo WT, and you have found your way to the Conversations Podcast. Conversations exist to create spiritually-minded conversations about life. We desire to create safe space for dialogue and community. We desire to come together regularly and intentionally to generate conversations about life, belief, and the intersection of the two. Everyone is welcome at the conversation. Hey friends, it is Leo WT. I am here and I am queer and I am escaping my Facebook ban. Um, <laughs> I had a troll report me earlier this week, uh, which well, I presumably is a troll because it wasn't a inflammatory post and it had been reposted and I had no original content in the captions, but I found a way to work around it. So I'm here uh, live for conversations with my new friend. Uh, I actually feel, if I'm being frank, I feel like I know you a lot better than I should know you, Thomas, because I've been uh, every day this week, I listened to a podcast with you in it and I read a chapter of God Can't. So I really feel like we're friends at this point, um, even though we've never met. <laughs> so uh, this, you found your way to conversations. Thomas has found his way to conversations conversations and we're going to have a good old time today. Um, Thomas is actually uh, an author, a theologian, an all-around chill person from what I've seen. And basically what we're going to do today is he's the guy with the answers, or at least he's not afraid <laughs> to field the questions and tell you what he thinks, right? So a lot, lot less pressure that way, right? <laughs> um, but today is the day to, to talk about all the things you thought you couldn't in Sunday school. Um, Thomas has uh, dedicated his life and, and his, uh, his spiritual quest and he's, he's harnessed his uh, spiritual curiosity into kind of thinking in different and new ways about understanding the God that is talked about in the Bible. And as you know, in conversations, everybody that's watching, um, I, it is my goal, it is my expressed goal to be intersectional and interfaith. And so I wouldn't have invited Thomas on here if I felt like he was afraid of that. And so today we're going to talk about God, right? And we're going to talk about all these questions that you didn't know you need answered, the things that you got told to not ask in Sunday school, not that that happened to me, but we'll talk about this after class kind of conversation. That's what we're here for today. Um, and Thomas is someone who has dedicated his life to this quest of spiritual curiosity. And he's been raw about it, and he's been real about it, and he tackles big questions like, why does evil exist? And I'm very um, honored and excited to have him on. So I'm going to let Thomas give you guys a little bit more of an introduction, and then we'll kind of dive in. Well, thanks so much for the opportunity to have the conversation, Leo. I'm not sure there's that much more that people need to know about me, except maybe I I would like to be very vulnerable right at the start and tell you what I care about the most. So like cut all the crap, go to the thing that's at the core. And uh, for me, that has to do with love. Um, what I want most in my life is to live a life of love, to try to love moment by moment, try to be consistent in that. I don't claim to be totally consistent in that, but that's my <laughs> my goal, my aim. Yeah. You know, when I die, I don't want someone to put on my grave, you know, he was a theologian or whatever. Mm -hmm. I care most about people thinking that I tried to love the best I could. Mm. 
Yeah. Absolutely. I love that. And I actually, I came about your work um, through a conversation with my friend Glenn Sieper over at the What If podcast. If you guys haven't listened to the What If podcast, very, very good stuff. Um, focusing, Glenn is really diving deeply into the deconstruction of evangelicalism. Um, and he's going to be on the podcast uh, coming up soon, and I'm going to be on his. It's a good old time. But um, I found Thomas on there through uh, his book, God Can't. Um, and so the idea here is Thomas actually has a pretty interesting approach to God um, and an understanding of God uh, called open and relational theology, which we'll get into as we talk. Not a theology class. I'm not trying to bombard you, but all I'm telling you is that like it might be different than what you were taught and you and there might be freedom in that latitude. You know what I mean? Uh, but Thomas, when I when I was listening to the deconstructionist and did a little bit more of my research and reading this week to prepare for this conversation, I saw that focus on love. And I think that that is such a universal thread that pulls all senses of religion and morality and humanism forward is that sense of love. And I think it's so powerful that you um, you held on so tightly to that last thread that you had. You know what I mean? It really sounded like that was your thing that pulled you through. Uh, would you mind sharing with us a little bit about like your religious background and kind of how you came to be at this um, at this place that you are now in terms of like your spiritual curiosity and understanding and such? Sure, sure. I grew up in a little town in eastern Washington state. My parents uh, were very active in a local evangelical church called the Church of the Nazarene. And I was, you know, a part of things, was at the church a lot, um, gave my heart to Jesus many times <laughs> as a kid. Um, and as I got into high school, started taking my Christian faith seriously, went to college and began to do a lot of evangelism kinds of things, because at that time, in my life, I thought, well, if the most important thing is the afterlife, whether or not you go to heaven or hell, then I ought to do everything I can to try to convince people to go to the good place instead right. of the bad place. And uh, <laughs> so I spent a lot of time doing that and also kind of studying, you know, um, I don't, I'm sure you've had experience of this mm -hmm. when you're, when you're an evangelist and you're out trying to share your faith you know, you, you try to get all the good arguments and try to convince people by these kinds of claims, usually by appealing to the Bible. And mm -hmm. so that's what I did. Uh, and then uh, near the end of my college career, I took a course in philosophy of religion. And in this course, I, for the first time, really um, studied the arguments of really smart people who were atheists, who were agnostics, who were from other religious traditions. And, um, I was convinced by them, or at least I didn't have a good answer for what they proposed. And for the sake of intellectual honesty, I had to stop believing in God. Mm -hmm. I called myself an atheist. I don't know if it was agnostics, a better word, but I was no longer someone who was uh, believing in God. And, and for me, you know, I, I come across atheists who are atheists for a variety of reasons. Some are atheists, I think, because they're just sick of the culture they've been a part of, which has been a, a culture, you know, based around God. And so they're mm -hmm. basically rebelling against their culture or maybe their parents or whatever. Mm -hmm. Some people I know are atheists, I think, because they've been told that they're not supposed to do X, Y, and Z, you know, they're not supposed to sleep with people they're not married and they want to. And so they, you know, <laughs> they reject faith in God. <laughs> right, or right, right. 
But for me, it was none of that stuff. For me, it was very intellectual. It was, you know, look, I need to be, I want to be honest with myself. I want to have good grounds to believe that there is something like a God. And if I don't have those, well, then I just want to give up on it. Mm -hmm. But I was also a person who um, kept at the questions, kept asking. And I eventually came to the place in which I decided it was more plausible than not that there was a God. Mm -hmm. I wasn't certain. I'm not certain right now there's a God. Mm -hmm. But as I look at the world, I look at my life, I look at experiences, I've come to think that there, there likely is a God. And, and really, it was two things that kind of brought me to this place, at least early on and, and mm -hmm. still today. One is um, I thought my life should matter, that mm -hmm. somehow life in general should matter, mm -hmm. that there ought to be some ultimate meaning in life. And without a God, I couldn't make sense of anything having ultimate meaning. Right. And the second one was, my intuitions about love, the intuitions yeah. I still have today. Yeah. <laughs> that, uh, you know, I ought to be a loving pe person. Other people ought to be loving. And I couldn't make sense of that intuition if there wasn't something like a source or ground of mm -hmm. love that most people call God. And mm -hmm. so that's my entry back into believing in God. And those are still pretty important to me today. Yeah, absolutely. I loved, I, I think I was really struck by um, the point in your story when I was, when I was reading it on Deconstruction, or listened to it on Deconstructionist, where you described how you, you had to describe yourself as an atheist or at the, or at most an agnostic. And I, I really resonated that with, because with that, because sometimes I don't like, I I'm starting seminary this week. I have an undergraduate degree in pastoral ministry. I have a minor in the Bible. I have a, on my knuckles here, I have Greek and Hebrew. Like I, 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 <laughs> I really drank the Kool-Aid going, you know, from the yeah. very beginning. Like I was, I'm a kid who's prone to just obeying authority and just like overachieving, like just doing it. And, and I don't now at this point in my life, I don't know, like I stumble over the word Christian, sure. but there, there's something that's there that's stuck in me yeah. and it, it's deeper or broader or different somehow than what I was taught. Mm but it's connected to what I felt in those, uh, in those moments where I felt like I was really experiencing something in those, in those Christian and religious circles. And so for me, I've spent my life trying, um, I've spent my life trying to ration, well, life since I came out and was kind of excommunicated, uh, excommunicated from evangelicalism. I've been trying to figure out what that means, right? Yeah. And I loved that love pulled you through, first of all. And I also loved that you're like, I have to be intellectually honest. Right. I feel like that's a, a classification that just doesn't necessarily exist, especially in like Western evangelical Christianity, <laughs> but in a lot of religions in general, you know, sure. I mean, there's this kind of beef that you have to really check your brain at the door. And I love that you weren't afraid of that. You were like, let's work with our brains. Like if we're supposedly divinely created, then why would we just have to shut off our logic to move forward in this relationship? So. Um, so what really pulled you back from that? Would you mind like just diving in a little bit more? Was it that connection to love or, you know, you say that you don't necessarily like fully know if there is a God now, but what no, brought no. you back to where you are, you know what I mean? Where you are religiously and spiritually and just morally as a person, like, how did you, 
come back to where you are and find validity in staying in a religion that is problematic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, man, that's, that's we a big talk one all day about this, but I um, know. <laughs> I talk to a lot of people who um, are self identified as atheists or are flirting with atheism. And, mm -hmm. and when I talk to them, many of them are in the position they're in because uh, they've come to believe that what they were taught in the past doesn't make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe it's some doctrine or maybe it's a way of living and, you know, they just, they know that's not right. And so they're now identifying as an atheist. Mm -hmm. And for those people, I, I encourage them to really go all the way. Don't mm -hmm. go, don't be a half-ass atheist. <laughs> go, <laughs> that's going on a t-shirt. Don't be a half-ass atheist. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to go down that road, yeah. go the whole route yeah. and then try to figure out what life is going to be like as a full-blown atheist. Absolutely. And, and what I find for myself and for lots of other people that once you kind of get to their place where there's nothing else mm -hmm. and you try to live your life, you, you start making all of these judgments, like about what's valuable, what's mm -hmm. meaningful, how you ought to live. You get mad at the president because he does something you think is immoral. And then you mm -hmm. think to yourself, well, what basis do I have to make some kind of claim that it's immoral? Or, yep. you know, somebody does something bad to you and you think, well, you know, that's not right. And you think, well, hold on a second. If there's no God, then there is no ultimate right. It's just whatever my opinion is. Or, right. you know, these, these, all these kinds of things. We think our lives matter sometimes. Our choices mm -hmm. have meaning. Mm -hmm. But if you're a true full-blown atheist, it's hard to have a fundamental basis for those beliefs. Mm -hmm. You might just say, well, I have them because they're just, you know, um, leftovers from my past or, you know, I just, the way I've learned to function in the world. But if you want to have a, a robust picture of reality, a robust way of thinking, if you want to be rationally coherent, mm -hmm. I think you have to start asking questions that lead many people back to some kind of belief in God. Yeah. But if you're like me, <laughs> if you're like me, the God you end up believing in is not the God you used to believe in. Right. You're not going back to the crap that you know you had before. Not that everything you were taught was crap. But, right, right. Um, you're going back to maybe some things, but there's an other also going to be some pretty radical differences as mm -hmm. you start to reconstruct is the word many people use today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I didn't I didn't really know that deconstruction and reconstruction were a thing until I've been doing it for a decade. So I'm a little late <laughs> on the trending hashtag. Um, I just thought I was I was kind of just muddling my way through this space um, yeah. where I only really understood myself to be post Christian. Um, for some reason, I'm just a I'm just a pesky little theist, no matter what, like, I couldn't get away yeah. from the idea of some sort of like divine overarching transcendent ah you know like ah yeah. i didn't even i don't necessarily always know what it is um but i couldn't i couldn't get away from theism because like because like you said just logically um if there are moral mandates and what really what really was interesting to me being a nerd is like you see these same moral mandates and little bits present in all uh, civilizations right 
look at native culture, right? Look at um, African tribal cultures, look at all of the different Abraham Abrahamic religions, certainly look at even the newer religions that have developed that don't descend into drinking grape Kool-Aid in Jonestown. Um, you know <laughs> what I mean? But like there's there's a core tenet of those, right? And yeah. the core tenet of a, of a cult is a charismatic person that's, you know, isolationary and exclusionist. But the core tenet of these other morality systems and, and, and religious systems and, and ways of being is that there is some sort of moral mandate there is some sort of overarching love um and there's just something there and i couldn't get away from that you know mm. uh, so i think for me when i come back to like why believe in god for me i just couldn't not if i was intellectually honest yeah yep. i couldn't not and i feel like the the transcendent thing like makes sense because there's so much about this world that like i don't understand but it's too I and maybe this is once again my bent in life, but it's too there's too there's too much organization, too much synchronicity for it to be random, you know. Right, that's another big issue. You know, there's there's a lot of beauty in the world. There is a lot mm -hmm. of order and design. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the biggest arguments against the idea that there is a foundation for beauty or an order we call God is that there's also a lot of pain, suffering, and evil in the world. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, and I think if you're going to be um, have a what we called earlier a plausible or a robust understanding of God in the world, you can't just look at all the rosy stuff. You got to right. look at the crap too. Yeah. But you also can't just look at the crap. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, right. like the number one reason most atheists don't believe in God, at least according to polls, is the problem of evil. Mm -hmm. But there's also the problem of good. Right. If there is no God, then why the heck is there so much goodness and beauty and truth in the world? Mm -hmm. And so I think if you're going to be um, seriously honest about life as you see it, you have to give an answer for both the good and the bad. Yeah, I love that. I was sometimes I, I'm a verbal agreeer, uh, but maybe it's because I like grew up a portion of my childhood in, in Southern Ohio, sort of tent revival Pentecostal situations where you sure. just got to yes and amen and like wave a hanky <laughs> all the time. But I'm a verbal agreeer. And in Zoom, I, in Zoom land, I have to be a little bit less. But I agree with that statement so much. You can't truncate the good from the bad, no matter what your belief system is. You have to come to a place where you can hold space for an understanding of good and bad and i sometimes i shy away from the word evil because it's so um just cased in religious dogma sure. but i mean you know there is good and there is bad and i don't you have to hold space for both of those so you yeah. talk you know obviously your book god can't is um we could talk for hours just about that but could you maybe give us just like sort of the um you know there's i know there's five things in there right uh and, and kind of a description of how you um explain that god can't because so many people think like the problem of evil like if there's a good god why does xyz happen can you give us like a little intro to that and then we'll kind of follow whatever threads come up sure um you know Many people who wrestle with this question, you know, why there's evil in the world or in my life, if God is truly loving and truly powerful, many, after they wrestle foot with it for a while, just kind of throw in the mystery card. Mm -hmm. um, if they continue to believe in God, they don't have a good answer for it. And so they reach into their back pocket, 
pull out this big old honking mystery card and clunk it right in the middle of the conversation. Mm -hmm. And that's supposed to be satisfying in some way. And it's not satisfying <laughs> for me. It is not satisfying at all. <laughs> no, I mean, it's better than the cliche answers like, you know, God needed another angel in heaven. That's why mm -hmm. your sister was raped and killed. I mean, that mm -hmm. just makes no sense to mm -hmm. me. But still, I want something better than mystery. And so mm -hmm. I have for quite some time been working at this. And finally come to a place where I think God is active in the world. God loves everyone all the time, but God simply does not have the power to control any person, any other creature, any circumstance. God is active and influential in all circumstances, mm -hmm. but God can't by very nature control anyone or anything. And a lot of people have kind of toyed with the idea that maybe God isn't in control and, and they'll say things like, well, you know, God didn't want that to happen, but God allowed it or God permitted it because, you know, either God's got a plan for it or, you know, um, maybe God just didn't want to interrupt that guy's free will when he had the gun and shot all the people, whatever they have. Mm -hmm. And that whole allow or permit, that just mm -hmm. doesn't work for me because, mm -hmm. I know that if I am in a situation in which I could exert influence to stop evil, but I allow it, then no one's going to call me loving for not stopping something that's horrific when I could have. Right. And if we have those kind of standards for us, we ought to apply that same standard to God. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I just found, I found this idea of open and relational theology. I found it um, as a dovetail to, uh, I was looking at process theology, which I'll be looking yes. up for the next 175 years until I understand <laughs> it. Uh, but for those of you who aren't theology nerds, there is a very common sort of Nicene Creed, Catholic Church, basic Protestant way of like understanding God. But what's so cool about what Thomas is doing, and there are other theologians out there, he's certainly not the first, and I, I really hope he won't be the last, but they're playing with, and I say playing because you can have spiritual curiosity and you can question and test and push the boundaries of what you know. I think if there if there is a God, God in fact would want us to play around with our understanding so that we really did. But what Thomas is, is kind of talking about is this idea that God is interactional and relational. Um, and God is, instead of this idea of God being like all powerful and omnipotent and everything, like God is relational and impacted by relationship with us as we are impacted by relationship with God. And, you know, just speaking, you know, directly at you again, Thomas, that is very redemptive for me. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like when you look at evil in the world, God either seems like that problem of why did God allow evil? God is either aloof and he has no idea <laughs> what his kids are doing in the other room or he's just a dick. Like, right. you know what I mean? You can't like, oh, I just allowed a mass shooting. Like, that's not something or someone or some unit, like an entity that I want to believe in. That's gross. <laughs> <laughs> gross like why like why you know yeah um would you be able to uh, once again i know this is like an hour and a half seems like a long podcast but it's it's not really once you get into a good conversation but could we open up the fire hydrant a little bit and can you explain to me how you came to this idea of mm. like a, a neo uh postmodern understanding of god's character and like how god is, in fact is a relational uh, has sure. transactional relationships with us? Yeah, I mean, I, I, there's lots of ways to answer this, but mm -hmm. uh, 
I think since a kid, I was a kid, I was wrestling with these big questions mm -hmm. and kind of feeling for answers. You know, as a kid, uh, maybe in high school or college, what we call the free will defense seemed to mm -hmm. be the best idea. So, you know, you, you ask the question, you know, why did the kid get tortured? Yeah. Well, the kid got tortured because his parents freely chose to torture him. God mm -hmm. didn't cause it, but God allowed it. Mm -hmm. Well, I never felt good about the allow stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and so that made me push to think more about other ways in which uh, God might not might be able to stop not only free will creatures, but other animals, mm -hmm. uh, cells in our body, uh, mm -hmm. you know, someone, something would come up like, um, oh, I don't know, let's take a, a miscarriage. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I know people who've had multiple miscarriages. Well, it, do they have miscarriages because of their free will? They're using their freedom wrongly? No, yeah. not the vast majority of time. That's not it. Mm -hmm. And so if God can really control what's happening in a woman's uterus, God can really control the cells, then why wouldn't a loving God prevent these miscarriages? Mm -hmm. So I then had to say, okay, maybe God's also not controlling at that level of reality. Mm -hmm. And um, along the way, I was I did a lot of thinking about God being relational and, mm -hmm. and um, it, it might surprise many of your listeners and viewers to find out that if you look at the major theologians, Christian mostly, but there are some Jewish theologians as well, uh, they have thought that God is not relational. They've thought that God doesn't have any compassion. Mm -hmm. God's not affected at all by what we do because they've thought that God had to be perfect. And in their view, a perfect being would be unaffected by anything, would be, mm -hmm. as you the word you used, aloof. Mm -hmm. This God is unmoved. <clears throat> now, this is not the God that I find described in most of the Bible, uh, but it's the way a lot of professional theologians have thought about God. And I just came to the place where I thought, not only in the name of scripture, but in the name of just what seems like to be a loving person, God's got to be a relational, giving and receiving mm -hmm. with me in the midst of my joy and my pain. Mm -hmm. But um, that view that God is relational, it's starting to come back. It's pretty strong, even in the academy. Mm -hmm. A lot of people who have that view still hold on to the back of their mind that God has the kind of omnipotent power that if God really wanted to help her out, mm -hmm. God really wanted to rescue them, mm -hmm. God could single-handedly. Mm -hmm. um, it would be like, let's say you and I are, um, oh, I don't know, where are you at? Where do you live now? I live in uh, Western New York, um, about Western a decade away from West, uh, from New York City. <laughs> okay, well, let's say you and I meet up in New York City for mm -hmm. for a coffee because we're both in in the city, and uh, we're having coffee when all of a sudden one of the gas lines explodes mm -hmm. and the building starts to come down, and I'm we're both trying to get out of the way and. I make it safely out, but a big beam comes down and lands right on your chest. Mm -hmm. And I crawl back over to you amidst the rubble and you look up at me and I can see that if you don't get this beam off your chest, you're going to suffocate. You're going to mm -hmm. die. And you say to me, Tom, help me out here. Now, if I just kind of got down next to you and said, hey, Leo, I'm with you right now. I could push this beam off and save your life. <laughs> Uh -huh. I'm just going to hold my hand here and, and be with you when you take your last breath. Uh -huh. 
I would be relational. I yeah. would be feeling this thing. Yeah. But if I had the real power to save you and didn't, you wouldn't think I was very loving and your no. family wouldn't either. No, not at <laughs> <It's>, all. <laughs> <laughs> we've got to go farther than just saying God is relational. As important as that is, I'm totally on board with that. You know, I'm a relational theologian. Mm -hmm. We have to go farther and say, not only is God relational, but God can't mm -hmm. single-handedly rescue us. Because if God could, God's doing a piss poor job in the world right now. Yeah, that's a terrible commentary on the nature of God. If God could, but doesn't, that's sadistic. That's all. That's a right. guy with an ant farm. Exactly. We wouldn't call, say a human who had the, the power to prevent evil and doesn't is loving. So why say God can do, be like that? Right. And I think there's plenty of times in in Christian scripture, certainly, uh, and and definitely in the Torah, uh, you know, Jew, the Jewish uh, Bible. Um, and I, and from the little bit I've read in the Quran, there's there's plenty of moments where God is um, given God, you know, is personified, like takes on human emotions like the God of the Old Testament. Like, dude, that guy needed a, a counselor. He was up and down, like he's dashing babies' heads off rocks, and he's like, uh, there's just, you know, it's it's problematic. We'll talk about that in a minute, probably. But like, there is evidence that God has these personified, transactional feelings, and right, to right. me, that's comforting because if God is, if God doesn't have that that interactional element then he's like kind of like a psychopath you know what i mean meaning right. that in the truest sense of the word with no emotion right and that's yep. strange i don't know why yeah, i mean one of the one of the um ongoing tasks i think of uh, people who believe in god and especially professional theologians like me is uh, we have to try to read through the biblical texts and try to make sense of our lives in such a way that um, we can make sense of when people, well, let's just use scripture, mm -hmm. when biblical writers sometimes portray God as actually evil. Mm -hmm. Like, what do you do with that? Yeah. I mean, if yeah. you're a serious reader of the Bible, like I am, um, you either have to think God has split personality disorder that, you know, mm -hmm. sometimes is really nice and loving, other times kicks your butt for yeah. whatever reason, or... Another idea, of course, is just to say there is no God and it's people just making stuff up. Mm -hmm. I've already talked about the problem with that view. Mm -hmm. My perspective is to say the dominant witness of the scriptures points to a God of steadfast, perfect, intimate love. Mm -hmm. But there are some portraits in the Bible that don't portray God that way. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm willing to dismiss those. I'm willing to say those passages just get God wrong. Mm -hmm. Just like... Sometimes people today misunderstand God. Even the writers of the Bible sometimes misunderstood God. Yeah. I um, feel like that was a big that was a big beginning point for me. I now mm -hmm. that I'm I'm a verbal processor, so I'm I'm processing some yeah. of this as we're talking. But I think yes. one of you know my obviously my first step to deconstruction was uh, the, the very two very clear simultaneous realizations um, that I was gay and that God loved me. I tried. Mm. Uh, I'm a very stubborn person. And so I let myself be privy to not one, but three exorcisms. And in looking back, that's definitely spiritually abuse, <clears throat> but I wasn't yeah. going to let anybody say that I didn't try. Okay. Good. Yeah. Yeah. I totally get that. Yep. So I did it. I let it happen. And then the, the weekend after my last exorcism, God, that's a phrase I never thought I'd say publicly. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> the weekend after my last exorcism, <laughs> well, that's fucking ridiculous. Um, I went to this retreat for a, a class um, of mine, which is called Personal Spiritual Formation. In hindsight, the class is incredibly spiritually abusive because they play mm. around with psychological concepts, but they do them without trained counselors there. Whatever different yeah. podcast but um on that retreat i was i was doing an intentional fast from talking i'm a talker i'm a communicator that's like what i do um yeah. that is my main strength is communicating and so um the idea behind it was that i would take a minute and intentionally science silence myself for 48 hours to kind of experience what the divine might be telling me in that moment mm abusive or not at the moment it did lead to the the punchline of this story which is um i was on some solo time at a monastery outside new york city bear mountain um by myself in the woods just kind of trying to listen and feel and i had just come out um and it had gone about as well as you would imagine it had gone at an evangelical <laughs> christian college yeah in the silence uh, i had this period of solo time i think it was like six hours just me uh, and nature and nothing else. And all I could hear over and over in my head was, I love you just as you are. Mm -hmm. And so the beginning of my deconstruction was whatever voice was speaking to me, I, mm -hmm. I, I still default to Christianity because that's my first language in terms of religion. Yeah. But in that moment, I truly felt that divinity was reaching down to me and saying, like you simultaneously are gay and are loved. And mm -hmm. so that was a really big, that was probably the linchpin in my deconstruction because that was a, diametrically opposed to what I had been taught. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the next thing that came for me was this idea of um, biblical inerrancy. And my yeah. friends and I used to joke that they had bugs in the in the dorms and you couldn't say the phrase without getting, without getting called to the dean's office. Like, don't say the phrase biblical inerrancy or you will get in trouble. <laughs> Uh, um, so we would like joke around about it. Uh, we actually had like an underground LGBTQ group that met at Nyack, and we didn't have a formal meeting time or place. It would just be me and my friend and we'd call a meeting for the next 24 hours and we'd be like meet by this tree. But it was we were literally that underground at that point and we were the same way with yeah. biblical inerrancy. Uh, but once I let go of the idea of be the Bible being the inerrant word of God, mm -hmm. it I mean, it was terrifying at the time. because that's what I oh, taught. Yes. But oh, it was yeah. also freeing because I didn't have to fucking answer for those scary ass Old Testament stories anymore. I didn't have right. to be an apologist for those. Um, then the Old Testament was a weird time, and I was uh, I was freed a little bit by realizing that the Bible. Uh, I think God inspired. I think the Bible is divinely inspired, but it was written by fallible humans, and then it's been translated over and over and over again by fallible humans. So it's a Preach Xerox it. copy Preach of a Xerox copy of a Xerox copy, and there are things that culturally don't make sense anymore, and there are things that definitely don't make sense if you don't understand the context of the writers, and there are things that were put in there by people who paid for them to be put in there i said what i said <laughs> you know what i mean like homosexuality as a concept uh consensual homosexuality is just not in the bible no, and so no. once i let go of the idea of biblical inerrancy um that was my second deconstructive process and i think you have to you have to be able to reconcile with that in order for me to take you seriously as a christian yeah, you have to yeah, yeah. I can't. yeah it was a big thing for me too um as you were telling your story though i was thinking that um, you and I, and probably everyone who's listening and watching this, uh, we've probably have histories in which people have done and said things to us that have 
not been good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, yep. They've screwed us up. Yep. And um, it's easy, I think, for some people to be uh, bitter about that. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes people have done things to me, harm me on purpose. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times people do it just because they don't know any better. Yes. You know? Yep. Um, their motives are actually pretty good. You mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. they have these, they probably s kind of swallow some of their feelings that mm -hmm. let's say, don't say what I'm about to say. And they say it because they think yeah. they're doing the right thing. You know, absolutely. I did that myself. Mm -hmm. I'm ashamed of it, but I did it. Yep. And, um, so as part of forgiving others for what they've done to me, I've also had to forgive myself for mm -hmm. what I did to others. Um, and I'm not saying that's easy. Right. <laughs> I'm not saying, you know, people aren't to blame. Right. Um, that's helped me to yeah. do the hard work of retaining the wheat, mm -hmm. the good stuff from my past mm -hmm. and burning the bad stuff mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and trashing that. And it's yeah. still, it's still a process. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, but I've made, I think, some significant improvements over time. Yeah. And I think that's uh, there's there's kind of this overall um, philosophical question, like anybody who's taken philosophy 101 at a liberal arts school, you've heard this question like, oh, is the nature of humans to do good or, you know, or is it fallible? Right. Are humans good or bad? Are humans collaborative or competitive? And I, I think I have to say that in looking back. I don't think that most of these motivations of the folks that had harmed me were, were for bad. Um, and for example, I'll use my mom. Uh, my mom's a dope ass human. She's coming on the podcast on Mother's Day. We are going to have a good old time. Uh, but my mom I've never said that my mom's a dope ass human. I'm going to have to pull that one. <laughs> you got to pull that one out. You got to pull that one out. Yeah, uh, I'm sure. I'm sure my mom will be infinitely proud if she listens. <laughs> uh, my mom is a great human. Like she's a little crazy, but everybody's mom is a little crazy, right? But what my mom does really well is love, uh, mm. and particularly her children. And she's always been a good mom. And she's never done anything intentionally that she thought would harm us. And in me yeah. coming out didn't go well. And my mom's also very stubborn. And so we had yeah. some go rounds. But sure. um, about two, three months ago, my mom called me and she apologized to me. Wow. And when I came out and she was she was crying and she had listened to one of my previous videos, which I was scared to put out because it was so honest, you know what I mean? Sure. But she said, you know, um, I'm not perfect. I failed you and I, I will fail you again in, in the future. But I just, I want you to know I'm sorry and that it, I never did anything because I didn't love you. You know what I mean? And I feel like, yeah. I feel like if you can let go, and this all ties to me to the idea of biblical inerrancy, because like if you can let go of that idea of infallibility, you can create space in your head for a philosophy and a theology that allows for imperfection um, yeah. with, but doesn't condemn a person um, based on a presumption of bad intention. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's um, nicely. Yeah, well said. It was great. It was really, really freeing. I didn't, I didn't know it was ever going to happen. So I'm, yeah. man, I love that woman. She's like I said, she's crazy, but it's like the scene in <laughs> uh, Stranger Things where they're like, this is our friend and she's crazy. Like, oh, she could be crazy, but we love her. <laughs> I, I imagine people say that about me. So, yeah. How do well, you, one of the, go ahead. Oh, no, I, you, I was, Okay. I, I, one of the, uh, you know, we, I talked earlier about God can't prevent mm -hmm. evil single-handedly and um, why that's important for me and for many people. 
I think it's a growing number of people to understand why there's evil in the world and how there's a loving God. Mm-hmm. But there's another side of this that's also been important to me. And it goes to the question of whether or not my life has meaning. My mm-hmm. choices are really significant. Mm-hmm. I've always had a sense that it it does have meaning, that my mm-hmm. choices do matter. I mean, the whole world doesn't revolve around me, but that, right. you know, choices I make, make a difference. Mm-hmm. But if you have a view of God, that God is in control of things, that God, you know, is really the one who's making the decisions and you just think you are, mm-hmm. um, then it's hard to take life very seriously as having ultimate meaning. And even if you have a God who uh, doesn't control you, but could, or maybe, you know, occasionally steps in and single-handedly bangs out a miracle here and there all alone, um, then you start to get, at least I start to get the feeling that, well, if God really, truly wants something to happen, if it's really important, ultimately, then God will make sure it happens, even if it has to be done single-handedly on God's part. Mm -hmm. But that then undermines my sense of what's valuable and significant. Right. So it's a long way of saying, I think if you really believe life matters, your life matters, Mm -hmm. you have, you make meaningful decisions. You should also believe that God can't control you at any time. That means that future is in part dependent upon what you do. And that means that for love to win, God has to somehow convince you to cooperate. And to me, at least that makes for a more meaningful understanding of my life and life in general. Yeah, that's so true. That's, that's, it's so logical. Like, and I haven't gone down that road intellectually in my mind, but that's incredibly true. There's so many, I think sometimes people don't realize like your belief in one thing is it's a Jenga tower. And mm-hmm. it, like it, it, when you you grow up with these fundamental understandings of certain things and then you challenge them, the tower falls down, but it can be rebuilt. That's a really interesting point about, you know, like if God can change it all, what what the hell is the point of what I'm doing? You know what <laughs> right, I mean? Right. I've never thought about that logically and I'm going to be chewing on it for weeks because that makes so much sense. Because I too have always had this understanding of my life having purpose. Now, yeah. I've had to deconstruct it from evangelicalism where, sure. you know, it was grandiose and I was going to go save people across the ocean and maybe I'll be a martyr, literally. Like that's, that's something that was like championed, right? In the church right. I grew up in. But even once I stepped outside from that, I still felt like that sense of purpose or calling. Um, and so that the idea that God can't is actually wildly redemptive of my sense of calling because it's motivational in a way. Like I need to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And those things I think, oh, I'm sorry. I just said, I like that. (laughs) Yeah. I I, want to kind of go, if if you don't mind, kind of come back to what I said at the very start, these ideas that God can't prevent evil single-handedly, that God can't stop you from doing things. So your choices really matter to me, fit hand in glove with, my intuitions about love, mm-hmm. that love is the answer. You don't have to be a Christian 
to think that love is at the source of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've written books on and compared other religious traditions. And while love is not as prominent in some of the other major religious traditions, there's still talk about love. Mm -hmm. Love is uh, universal in that sense. Now, we have different understandings sometimes of what love entails, but this fundamental intuition that we ought to do good to each other, to ourselves, to our enemies, to strangers, to the planet, that's something I think is deeply ingrained in all of us. And I think, and I could be wrong, but I think the source of the intuitions you and I and everyone who's listening to this have about love, have a God of love as their moment by moment source. Mm -hmm. I can't prove that. Mm -hmm. I don't know it with absolute certainty, but I think it's the most reasonable account of my life and the world that I find before me. Yeah, that's man. I'm I'm never lost for words ever. Like not since I've been <laughs> speaking, but like it's so. I, I was thinking to myself, like I wish I could just sit in a class of yours or hear you preach or something. And I feel like we're having this moment right now because you're you're saying so many things that for mm. me are honestly helping me on my reconstruction journey, which is mm. still in its infancy. You know. Um, yeah. I think one one other thing, and I, I'm like just pulling out of my own head right now, not even off any list of questions, but I had a friend on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, amazing human. I mean, one of the most impactful humans in my life. We met when we were in an evangelical circle. I was doing an internship at a church in Harlem. Uh, we worked together there and, and I recently like reconnected with her, not I was, I've never been deconnected from her, but I was like, hey, let's get you on the podcast. And she was a little worried because she has come to a place where she understands herself to be like an atheist. And I, she was like worried about coming on. I was like, no, dude, get on. Like, I want to hear what you think. Like, I don't, I'm not gonna be thrown by it. Like, I just want to hear what my really smart friend has to say. And she brought up a point about how she's not, she doesn't feel so comfortable with the idea of using the word love um, because it has been so misused because sure. so many people have done bad things in the name of love. And so her kind of universal mandate that she functions around at the moment is do what is safest for those around you. And I, mm. I thought that was really interesting because like we have all seen instances, especially in churches, where what is loving looks more like a sledgehammer than a hug. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Like we, we've all seen it. And so what are, you, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, because like because love is your thing, right? So what do you yeah, think yeah. about like when people misuse the word love? You know what I mean? Like how does that what oh. are your thoughts on that? Yeah, love is uh, one of the multi-meaning word. I've written, I, I wrote a whole book called Defining Love. Okay, <laughs> so I, I've, I've thought an awful lot about this question. Just a chat. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think when we use the word, we ought to try to give a definition to be clear what it is. And just for the sake of you and the people who are listening to this, I define love as acting intentionally in response to others, including God, since I believe in God, mm -hmm. to promote overall well-being. Mm, so love yeah. is about promoting well-being. Now, mm. sometimes that promoting well-being is do no harm, is mm -hmm. you know, be safe. Um, and I'm I'm on board with that. But um I actually think sometimes all, love also is risky. Mm -hmm. That sometimes um you can't play it safe. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not saying you should go harm people, but I'm saying that uh, sometimes you have to make uh, take a risk that, um, well, maybe I could put it this way. Um, as you know, one of the most common 
biblical language or biblical um, phrases is do unto others as you would have done unto you. In some of the other religious traditions, that phrase or that thing is said, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. And that's kind of like this safety thing that sounds to me like mm -hmm. your friend is saying. Mm -hmm. But there's a difference between avoiding harming and proactively trying to do good to others. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes it is taken too far. Sometimes people do are trying to do good and they end up doing harm. I'm not dismissing that at all. But I have a more proactive approach, I think, mm -hmm. than uh, what at least strikes me when I hear someone say uh, uh, safety rather than love. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, also safety wins is just not a good t-shirt. So. <laughs> 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 oh, I love it. Um, yeah, no, that, that, that train of conversation really struck me though, because it does force, it does at least force us to reconcile with the fact that people have done a lot of unloving things in the oh, name no love, and that's something that. that needs to be reconciled. And yeah. I think, I just think that you, you, so many people conflate their opinion with what God said. Um, and if you're, if your basis is flawed, and you're a fallible human shit can go really sideways you know yeah, what i mean yeah. um one of the questions on here that i really wanted to ask you on the list um as it's just kind of picking through we've we've covered most of them to be honest okay but, um one one of them is um does the church have any moral authority given its complicity in slavery anti-lgbtq actions and rhetoric and not sheltering immigrants now this is a big question for me because it it, it actually it brings into play something I've been thinking very deeply about lately, something I'm actually writing about at the moment. Um, the idea of Christian, like religion versus Christian culture, because I think a lot of times the culture of the church is what has been, um, you know, racist and, and homophobic and, um, you know, xenophobic. I think a lot of times the culture of the church is that, but they're really reading from a different playbook um, in terms of what, how they're interpreting it. So what's your, what's your take on that? Well, I think moral authority is given, mm -hmm. it shouldn't be imposed. Mm. And so there are lots of people who still think the church has moral authority. Mm -hmm. uh, lots of people don't think it does. So I, I don't, I, I can't make an overarching kind of claim. Does it, it kind of depends on who you are and your experience with the church. Mm -hmm. um, I do think though that it's, much less common today for mm -hmm. people to just assume the church is right or your pastor is right or your mm -hmm. community is right. And part of the reason for that is not just all the stuff that you mentioned that the church has sucked at and, and made mistakes on is hurt people over. Mm -hmm. Part of it is just that thanks to the internet, we have a much broader awareness of the world and what other people think. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, you know, if I wanted to find out what a Buddhist thought, I couldn't go to the internet, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I just didn't have much awareness of religious diversity. I knew about these other religions, but most of what I know was just, you know, preachers or Christian musicians making right. fun of the Muslims or whatever. Yep. Right. Yep. I just didn't know anybody personally. And I didn't see a video in which someone was authentic. Yeah. So in a world in which we have so much more access to good and bad sources, not just mm -hmm. all good, yep. 
um, it's harder and harder for any one or any group or any organization to have true authority mm -hmm. unless that group individual or organization does something that we find valuable and then all of a sudden we place some authority in them so mm -hmm. you know you look at i just yesterday i was out hiking and usually on my hikes i i listen to podcasts on my way out and i happen to turn on rob bell's latest mm -hmm. podcast you mm -hmm. know rob bell is a moral authority for a lot of people mm -hmm. For other people, he's just a heretic. I love it. <laughs> he is. Uh, he is for so many people. <laughs> right. So why is that? Well, it's because that Rob and his ideas have been helpful to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And so they now give him a kind of moral authority. Mm -hmm. Can the church regain that or have that or somehow establish that moral authority? I suspect it's possible. Mm -hmm. I think in today's world, it's probably more likely on a smaller, more local level. Yeah. You know, yeah. your church down the street's doing a really bang up job. You mm -hmm. like the pastor and the people, you're going to give them a kind of authority. Mm -hmm. But hey, maybe you think that Christianity in general is mostly going to hell in a handbasket. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so that it's just going to vary. Yeah, I think that's actually a pretty astute observation. And I think that that might be you know, I think there's some some roles of generational differences in there, too. Uh, I sure. when I was maybe 16, I'm full disclosure, I'm just a super nerd. Um, uh, when I was 12, I was at Bible camp and uh, my brother bought sea monkeys and I bought the fourfold gospel. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, you know, it's this book like this thick. And I was like, could yeah. you believe this was on the clearance rack? You know what I mean? <laughs> I um, Man, I lost, I lost where I was going with that, but there's just a lot of, I think there's a lot of, oh, postmodernism. There's a lot of difference between people of different generational uh, affiliations, right? And, and definitely something that happened when our world moved from like a boomer, modernistic, uh, mindset into a postmodern mindset is I think that people value relationships much more than they value institutional authority. Mm, and so yeah. I think if anything, like, I don't think the church needs to have moral authority. I think people need to stand up and live a life that proves that they should be listened to or at least trusted. Right. Yeah, I'm with you. Know? you. I mean, that's how Jesus did it. Jesus didn't go to the institution of the day and be like, give me your moral authority. Um, yeah. Jesus baptized. Well, Jesus empowered people to baptize people in puddles and then send them away from the temple. Right. And and I don't mean that to be anti-Semitic um, because there's so much richness to Judaism. And frankly, I think there's a sure. lot of ways that Judaism got it right and we messed it up. You know what I mean? But but the the metaphor being that that um, this person who was revolutionary gave authority and empowerment to people and then sent them away from the establishment to go out and reach the people that the establishment was never going to be able to go to because the establishment mm. doesn't have feet. And I think that's a lot more of a return to what the gospel actually was, which was just people in their daily lives doing good shit um, yeah. and bringing the kingdom of heaven to now and not worrying about an afterlife, you know? Yeah, yeah. I don't, I, well I think said. that postmodernity doesn't really have a need uh, for a moral authority in a church, but postmodernity does value people who do sure. what they say they're going to do. Um, Rob Bell definitely impacted me in that way because he challenged me to think differently about how I believed certain things in the Bible. I'd never thought about like universal salvation. I, you know, I actually now proudly wear the title of heretic. I actually have a hat that says heretic. <laughs> uh, I'm all, all about it because a heretic is just someone who pushed on the edges of their faith to see what needed to be more fully developed or understood. 
Dude, yeah. I'm down with that. I am yeah. down with intellectual integrity, even if it pushes me to uncomfortable places, which it sure has, you know, so. Yeah. Um, well, ooh, go ahead. No, I was going to make make a comment that wasn't all that important. So. Oh, it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's some of this stuff about Christians in here, which I think the idea of holding, um, you know, I think there's a delineation between church culture and church as a religion. So I'm going to shelve those because that's a conversation I'm going to bring up at another time, like to dive into okay. more. Um, but one thing that someone mentioned on here, and I really liked your description of this in God can't, um, was the idea of uh, the purpose of prayer. So would you mm. kind of give us like, you had some really interesting ideas about what prayer is and isn't and and how it can be beneficial for us. Um, and, and for me, full disclosure, I consider prayer to be a much broader thing than I was taught. Um, sure. You had some great thoughts on this on the deconstructionist, so I'm not going to steal your thunder, but um, what's the purpose of creating a transactional or relational moment with divinity? Um, mm -hmm. And let we can call it prayer for the sake of this conversation, but what's the purpose or function of that, that in, yeah. in your eyes? Well, uh, if you take relational theology seriously, what you do really makes a difference to God. And what God does makes a difference to you. So what God chooses to do in the next moment depends in part what you chose to do in the previous moment. That means your, your choices really make a difference. And that then helps me to make sense of prayer, even prayer to a God who I think can't single-handedly fix things. Um, so let me explain what that looks like. And, yeah. and, um, and I think the best way to do it is kind of compare it to some other ways people think about God and prayer. And by prayer here, you've used the word transaction. Mm -hmm. I'm going to use the word petitionary prayer. So Perfect. asking God to do something, which mm -hmm. is a common way people pray. So obviously, if you have like a Calvinist view of God, in which God controls absolutely everything and predestined it from the foundations of the world, it's hard to get motivated to pray yeah. because basically everything's already been settled. My prayer is not going to change anything in the future. Yeah. God's already <laughs> predetermined it all. So, I mean, I'm not saying Calvinists don't pray. I'm just saying intellectually, it's not to me a very coherent system in thinking about mm -hmm. prayer in God. Most people I don't know uh, don't have that view. They have the view <clears throat> that God could single-handedly fix things, and God wants to be asked before God's going to get off his butt and do something. God's, <laughs> to put God it is simply. petty. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's like God's folded arms sitting back yeah. and saying, you know, Leo, you haven't <laughs> asked me to do this, or you haven't asked me enough times. You've prayed about this six times, but yep. I need 60 times. Yeah, something. God is that God is that parent or English teacher is like, can you or may you? I just want to punch him in the face. That's what it seems like if God could do everything and he's just sitting, he's just chilling, waiting for you to ask for it. Like, what a douche. Right, right. That makes no sense whatsoever. If God can single-handedly do anything and God is truly loving, mm -hmm. not only would God not make you ask a bunch of times, why would you even have to ask at all? I mean, if God really knows what's best and really loves you, I mean, think about what your good parents, when they have an infant who, let's say, is a one-year-old, can't talk, 
you know, they're not waiting for their kid to ask them to help them out with something. You know, they feed them, they bathe them, they do the things that are loving, even though the kid, one-year-old can't ask. Yep. Um, So that doesn't make a lot of sense. So what a lot of people will do, especially people who have prayed and realized that their prayers haven't had the desired results that they want. (laughs) They're like me and they've prayed for people to be healed and very few get healed. And they're honest about that. Um, then they kind of have a view that God doesn't really get affected by their prayers. God doesn't answer prayers. And I hear this, especially in more progressive churches that I preach in, they'll say things like, well, prayer doesn't change God. It changes me. And what they have in mind is they don't want to think that somehow their prayer is going to get God got off his butt because they mm-hmm. don't, that doesn't sound right. And they've been burned by praying for, you know, healings that haven't happened. And they think God wants healings. Yeah. So they just think, well, God doesn't really respond to our prayers, but God or we get changed our mind, our way of thinking, whatever it changes. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm, I'm all about us being changed by prayers, but I think there's more than that. And mm-hmm. as a relational theologian, I have a way of thinking about it. So this is my view. Mm-hmm. Our prayers in one moment make an impact upon God and actually present new possibilities for God in the next moment. Mm-hmm. Because we live in a relational universe and God's a relational God, our actions make a real difference to us, to our environment, and to God, such that the future, in the next moment and future moments, can really be different because we prayed in the previous moment. It doesn't mean that our prayers somehow make God uh, be turbocharged, that God can now control us or control others when God couldn't before we ask. I'm not saying that. I don't believe God can control. But I am saying that just like in our own relationships, if if we get new information from someone in our family, that affects how we then act in the future moments if we're truly loving yeah and that's the way it works with god except obviously i mean obviously i believe god is omnipresent so Mm -hmm. god has a much more influence in the world than you and i do Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely absolutely i i i think i I really vibe with that because i feel like it just makes sense Uh, (laughs) like there is there's a participatory nature to god otherwise what's the point in us believing at all like if if god just is and he's up there like whatever what like what what's the point um that's why i could never really vibe with calvinism so (laughs) um and i I don't want to i've i've read good calvinist writers i don't want to slam them in general uh, but Mm, Oh, I have friends who are Calvinists. I just don't think that way of thinking makes a lot of sense, which I really like that you said that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Prior, excuse me, prior to the pandemic, I did a lot of traveling and speaking, uh, you know, in universities or Mm -hmm. conferences or churches or whatever. And when I present the ideas of open relational theology, the number one response I get from people is, wow, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, yeah, theology that makes sense. Who weird, weird, right? You know, it's like the mystery card. Like as soon as you don't understand something, evangelicals be like, 
his ways are higher than yours. And I'm like, yeah. that's not an answer, bro. That's a cop out. <laughs> right. I'm totally with you. You did not push the intellectual boundaries of what you just said and you got found out. You know what I mean? <laughs> Don't drop that. His ways are higher than mine. BS. <laughs> yep. I totally agree. That's just a cop out. I, I can't even with that. So now I have a question for you that is, is maybe a pivot uh, and it was in okay. no way on our list, but I'm just very curious about this because this is, um, as someone who's only recently begun reconstructing, I'm now because I'm I'm innately wired to be a theologian and and a philosopher mm. and a thinker. Like that's just how I'm wired. So I am now um, finally exploring different topics because I didn't know this whole world was out here of these different views because I was so evangelical I didn't know. Um, yeah. So I'm reconstructing how I interpret specific passages that were used to be very exclusionary and um, and narrow in my childhood. So what do you do with the Bible verse? And I apologize if this puts you in hot water, but I think at this point we've established oh. that you're just chatting with a friend. That's here. right. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do with the Bible verse that says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I've, I've riffed on this with a couple other people um, in past episodes. So I'm just curious what, what you would do with that verse or, or how it makes sense to you. Um, um, in, you know, in relation to the journey you've taken and what you now know, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think when John quotes Jesus as saying this, it's in the context of Jesus being the source of abundant life, uh, Jesus being, he's got all kinds of light and life mm -hmm. and water and all these kinds of metaphors and things. I think fundamentally what's at stake here is that John is making the claims about the way of Jesus being the way of true life, abundant mm -hmm. life, the life of love. I think Jesus, more than anyone, more perfectly than anyone, expresses love. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, if I think God is a God of love and God wants us to love, then following the love of Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, is yeah the way in which we find our utmost potential, our right relationship with God. I mean, we've got all kinds of phrases we can use yeah, and yeah. You know, some are better than others, but the way that we finally have the kind of beautiful love relationship God wants us to have, I think is clearest in Jesus, not the mm -hmm. only one. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. Other people also show love and, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a pluralist in the sense that I think other traditions have truth in them. Mm -hmm. but I'm most captured and captivated by this Jesus guy. Mm -hmm. And um, that's how I in interpret that particular passage. That's great. Thank you for that. I admit that also makes a lot of sense. I feel like I wish I would have known you about 32 years earlier. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Because there's so much less unlearning to do. Not And certainly not that I'm saying that you are perfect or this deity or no, something, no, but I just, no. I didn't experience this kind of open and playful nature with theology when I was younger. It was very much like, that's it. You know what I mean? Like Wayne yep. Grudem, systematic theology. That's like what I cut my teeth on. And it's just like, yeah. I can't, can't vibe with it anymore. So um, that's funny. I I now a direct doctoral students in open and relational theology, and yeah. and often when I when students are writing their dissertation and they want to have the foil, the person that they're arguing against, I say, get Wayne Grudem. Oh my God. Like he's the litmus test there. Like that's what we're, here's our baseline. Oh my God. Yeah. That's so funny. For those of you guys who don't know, I'll let you in on a little secret. Wayne Grudem is a, a systematic theologian and he's offered a, a, a authored a book called Systematic Theology that's pretty widely used in evangelical uh, Bible oh, I think schools. It's the number one selling systematic theology on Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and I was, I was, so I'm going to seminary now. At first I was a little bit like, oh, this is a bummer that I have to go because, um, listen, I, I grew up like in this world. So I've already invested $80,000, which has not made me a cent, but I've invested $80,000 in an education that I can't use because the second I came out, the only church that would acknowledge my degree said, we won't acknowledge you. And so I was like, it's a bummer. I'm a little salty about this degree sometimes. Uh, so when I have to go back to seminary, which I always wanted more schooling, but it's just annoying for someone to say like, you know, the work you did doesn't count. Yeah. But I'm I'm so excited to honestly, to go back and learn things from a non so narrow perspective yeah. um i was meeting with my seminary class um yesterday like our, our incoming class they were just having like a zoom happy hour and everyone was brown female or queer and i was like dude i'm at the right seminary <laughs> I love it. <laughs> like so many of my friends were like, so many of my good friends that I have now are literally like protective of me. And they're like, are you sure you mm. should go back into this environment? Because we yeah. know what you went through. And I was like, dude, <clears throat> you know I mean? seminary is like the queerest place right now, as long as you pick a good one, right? So Yeah, yeah, I love it. <laughs> um, I definitely noticed that you have a, a, a doctoral program in open relational theology. We'll we'll talk about that off camera. So <laughs> oh, okay, great, great. <laughs> I'm getting I'm getting a doctorate one way or another. And I feel like if I'm gonna swing, I might as well swing for the heretical fence. Right. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so we have just a few minutes left here, um, but I would love I'm, I want to maximize. I'm squeezing the juice out of these moments with you because it's just so it's just so refreshing to hear someone who's not scared uh, by questions and who's not really afraid. Plus, you also think about this regularly, whether or not you get paid. So it's nice that you, you've had these four thoughts. But what do you think? Um, what do you think is based on this open and relational theology idea that you've come to know and test and try like what do you think that this open and relational understanding of theology has to bear uh into witness or to like say to the idea of like interfaith cooperation because i know interfaith cooperation would have never been encouraged in the type of circles i grew up in and now for me that's regrettable because i've found beauty in the sufi poets and i've had i have such a deeper appreciation for the torah now than i did before college and i'm about to go into a progressive class on the torah like that's i'm i'm, I'm pumped for it like bring on the ancient judah uh you know judaism like mystics like we're we're reading the torah through a womanist lens like all these things so so what do you think that that what you've come to learn since your crisis of faith what's that have to say about the conversation on interfaith relationships yeah open and relational theology assumes god is present everywhere to everyone mm -hmm. and not just present god is revealing mm. everywhere to everyone now because god can't control anyone that revelation can never be absolutely crystal clear unambiguous mm -hmm. it can't be full in the sense of giving absolute truth that means that there's no person and no tradition that's got it absolutely 100 right mm -hmm. however it could be that some of us understand better we discern better we're closer to the full truth than others. There could be some traditions that are closer to the full truth. We can't know this with absolute certainty. Right. We make these kind of assessments based on the way we see our lives, the way we live, science, mm -hmm. all these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So in terms of interfaith, I think it's really important 
And I think it's not just important just so we can all get along. Right. We actually can learn something important in our, from our own, for ourselves, mm -hmm. if we interact with those of other religious traditions. And what I find is that at least what I was told when I was younger about how those Muslims are, or those whoever Buddhists yeah. are so yeah. radically different and they're deceived by Satan. I find that when we get down to it, there's a lot of similarities. They're not the same. I'm not saying that at all, mm -hmm. but there are a lot more similarities than I would have thought when I was in junior high. And, mm -hmm. you know, my Sunday school teacher talked about how Satan, Satan is ruling all the other religions. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just, it's just so reductionary and it really bothers me because it's so presumptuous and <clears throat> really, I think a lot of what I see as problematic with Christianity is really an outcropping of the doctrine of discovery and the Council of Nicaea and all of these things that we, I'll, I don't want to be exclusionary to people that are watching, but this is a nerd conversation. If you have questions, drop them specifically. Uh, but, so, but so much of, <clears throat> so much that I have problems with when it comes to Christianity, I could actually parse it out um, as an interpretation of the Bible, right? This doctrine yeah. of discovery that gave us the freedom as white people to commit genocide to Native Americans, uh, that gave us the audacity as white people to think that we were taking Jesus back to a continent where he probably walked. You know what I mean? Like, there's yeah. just so, so much audacity in that. But I think that we have so so much to learn. Um, yeah. Like I'm, I, I personally am really attracted to two ideas right now that I've been mulling over for a couple months. Like I, I'll probably write something on the topic at some point. But uh, first of all, the idea is I talked to a, a Muslim friend of mine and we had a conversation. It was actually the very first inaugural conversations conversation. And we talked about the similarities between Islam and Christianity and what led her on her journey from actual like Protestant evangelical Christianity to Islam. Um, and, and we wound back our way around to the end to where she said, you know, like Islam does not discriminate when it's people of the book. Like if we're, and I love that idea because it's like, if we're coming together on the same majors, why do we got to fight each other? And I, I loved that idea that I've picked up recently from Islam. And then there's an idea of, um, uh, in Judaism, they don't really focus on the afterlife. And I think Christians right. are just, they have talked about the afterlife for so long as a matter of escapism and not yeah. taking responsibility for the massive tragedies that Christianity has impacted on the world, right? So if yeah. we talk about God's kingdom as a thing that is other, then we don't have to fix our Keystone Pipeline crisis. We can keep worrying right. about it, you know what I mean? Um, and so I think, it's, I think it's not only possible, but maybe perhaps like really necessary that we yeah. have space for these intersectional you know transactions with people who are different um and understand the world differently yeah that's nicely said um let me throw one real quick thing in here that might Please be contra controversial to some of your people who are listening to this um what i think is really weird is that i sometimes find myself having more in common with my mormon friends and my mm. baptist friends mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um or my Buddhist friends mm -hmm. instead of my, obviously my fundamentalist Christian friends. Right. And when you start realizing this, you, you, you I think some of the boundaries begin to disappear. I'm not, again, I want to be clear. I don't think all religions say the same thing. Right. I'm not saying that at all. Mm -hmm. And I'm also not trying to say every religion is just as valuable in the sense of having closer to the truth than others. Mm -hmm. I'm a Christian because I really think that this Jesus guy's got something that's profoundly um, different and I think in some ways better. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is not me just sort of ruffling over all the differences. Right, right. But you can believe that Christianity has a 
fuller sense of the truth and also think that you can learn something from Buddhism For uh, sure. that you couldn't get directly from Christianity. And that's, I think, a, a healthy interfaith approach. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, the way I've come to describe my understanding of faith is because it's not, I don't, frankly, the reason that I would ever associate with the Christian church right now is beyond my grasp based yeah. on the experiences that I've had. But there's something in me that's like, you got to make this make sense. So I've kind of, once again, in my in my studies, when it comes to culture versus, versus religion, um, I've kind of come to understand that, like, I will always culturally be a Christian. I don't have an, an ethnic identity, which is really, it's a tragedy, uh, a travesty that happened because of whitewashing that took place when America decided to create race to divide the black slaves and the white indentured servants. Not that I'm on a yeah. soapbox about that, but but I don't have an ethnic identity because of that. And right. so my only real heritage and identity is cultural Christianity. Um, Interesting. And so I've been winding my way around that, but I've, I've come to understand that I've, if I can understand it as a culture, I just, I can free myself from a lot of shame because mm. Christianity will just always be my first language. It's not that mm. I can't learn another, but I'll always default yeah. to my first language. I'll yeah. always speak with a Christian accent because that's what I grew up in. And so I'm, I kind of have taken this sociological and anthropological view to my faith. And that's been redemptive for me because otherwise, if I just look at it, man, I was an ass like i wore a shirt that said abortion is homicide i right. when my friend came out to me in college she was like you know aren't you gay and i was like no no but like it's okay like it's not like god doesn't like it but he likes you and i'm like this i've just said and done some damaging stuff yeah. what if i understand it as how i was cultured i can yeah. find some forgiveness for myself by viewing by viewing it that way you know that's good leo i like that yeah. it's been a big healing process i've got a great counselor who lets me text her um i'm like can we put this in our notes for next session you know so she'll get like eight texts from me and i'm like i want to talk about this in two weeks you know? um but but it's been it's been a process but now um like i said this i think i mentioned this at the beginning this summer um there was at the george floyd protest in our town there was no religious presence there and i'm not saying there's no good pastors in my town because there's 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 a couple of good ones right um but yeah. they're bound by their vestries and they're bound by their their board or whatever and so this summer i was like well fuck it i have a degree and i also have a little badge that cost me 20 bucks from the universal life church i'm gonna get myself a collar and i'm gonna show up at the protest and since i love then, it <laughs> you know what i mean since then i was like since then i've i've, I've almost uh, embrace this sassy side that said you're not going to disenfranchise me from my culture and I like I don't even know if I like it all the time but it's mine <laughs> well, so so here we are it's, it's really good to hear those thoughts though uh, we have about nine more minutes but I have two questions um, okay. Would you I'll mind? Make my answers quick. <laughs> Perfect. It, it's, there's really there's uh, time limits are artificial here, but I'm just I'm just letting you know. Um, but yeah. I, I do have two questions. What uh, what what do you have in common with your Mormon friends, and what have you do you have in common, or have you learned from your Buddhist friends? Just out of curiosity. Mormon friends. Uh, real quickly, there's more than what I'm going to say right now. The yeah. Mormon tradition has an emphasis upon free will. I mm -hmm. think that's important to make sense of. My some of my Baptist friends don't have that. Yep. Um, Mormons have a God who is relational, who mm -hmm. suffers with us. Uh, some of my Catholic friends don't have that. Mm -hmm. Mormons, this is going to be a wild one for you. Mormons reject the idea of creation out of nothing. Mm, okay. I also reject the idea of creation out of nothing. Mm -hmm. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Um, so there's three quick things. Yeah. Buddhism. Um, Buddhism has a fundamental uh, uh, view that all things flow, mm. that we move through time. Mm-hmm. They also have a strong relationality in them. And both of those things are fundamental how, about how I think about God and reality. Um, and they also have a, at least there's a, a tradition of compassion, karuna is what they call it, that okay. I think is important. So real quickly. That's super cool. Thank yeah. you. We have um, in, the, in the process of conversations, I've kind of it just really mirrors me. Uh, we actually started in 2010 and conversations was the young adult small group that I ran for about five years. Uh, we had a core group of 30 to 40 people. We took two or three missions trips uh, yearly. We would take a missions trip monthly. We would serve at our soup kitchen and all of it was done without any contact, uh, without any pre preconceptions of who you had to be to join. It was actually frequently it was a gaggle of lesbians because I was a lesbian and um, sure. That's who was coming. Uh, but but since since we've evolved into this digital age, COVID really provided us a way to kind of pivot and relaunch um, in a new direction and reach a broader group. But what I'm doing with my next year of conversations is we're starting from our Western faiths and our Abrahamic faiths, and then we're working outwards. Um, yeah. So I have some three-way panels set up uh, with an LGBTQ Muslim, LGBTQ Hasidic Jew, and then myself. Um, and we're going to dialogue on culture and religion one week, and then the next week we're going to talk about our coming out stories um and we're doing that in the holy season right so near right before ramadan so that our our muslim friends can participate um and then we're blowing it out to those to those um like eastern understandings so as i find more people um we're blowing it out and so it's really cool to hear you present those perspectives because just to ignore like there's once again there's this lack of acknowledgement from like a lot of white Western Christianity that there's any good thought anywhere else. Like if it didn't come from a white man who sang Germanic hymns, like if your if your church doesn't sing hymns that were written by a German or sung in a bar, like you can't. No, that's crazy. So I presumptuous. So presumptuous. So awesome. I had one other thought for you, but it's like escaping okay. me. <laughs> um, oh yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Okay, I got it back. The train is back on track, but. I think one of the, the one of the downfalls of Christianity is the way that we've dealt with the actual spiritual component of our religion. And I think a lot of times there's moments where the church veered so um, so heavily into ritual that it forgot spontaneity and room for spirituality mm. and experience and nuance, you know, and making movements like I'm dancing. Um, we, we forgot that. And yeah. then like, so that's one way. And then the other way, we just went, fucking crazy and started playing with snakes you know what i mean <laughs> i think that like <laughs> oh, we gotta oh, we gotta own up to it like i don't claim those people but they're cousins you know yeah. um, but i i think that's one way that the church lost postmodern folks is they truncated mm. this idea of like what you feel from what you do which in mm. psychology that's where you end up with 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 dysfunction it's a mental yeah. disorder when you separate what you feel and what you do, you feel systemic psychological fallout. And I think the church lost postmodern folks in that truncation of the, those, you know, the things we believe and the things that we feel and things that we do. So that was just just amusing on my part. But well, I'll, I'll do a quick musing in response. I'm ready. I'm, I'm ready for it. <laughs> uh, at the very heart of open and relational theology, in, at least in terms of as it thinks about the method of it, is the notion that our experiences are fundamental. They really matter. Mm-hmm. Yes, ideas matter. Yes, rituals matter. 
but fundamentally our experiences tell us truth about who God is and the way mm. the world works. Mm. And we've already been talking about this in the last hour and a half when we've talked about, you know, what's loving for us ought to be loving for God. That's right. another way of saying, let's take our own experiences of love and morality and, and let's say God also has to measure up to what's loving. Yeah. Um, so I like your emphasis upon experience. Yeah, you ha you have to because like you can take so many things from a person, but you can never take away what they actually experienced. Right, right. Yeah. I, I don't know if a bunch of people in the Midwest saw UFOs, but I can't take away whatever happened. I can try to explain yeah. it away, but I can't take it away. Sure. Um, yes. and, and I love I love the idea of um, the there's a campaign, and I'm not sure if it's just a United Church of Christ campaign, but uh, I saw the banner in my friend uh, Pastor Adams. Uh, live video. He's the dude that makes all those like inflammatory church signs um, in Clackamas, uh, Oregon, as it like goes viral for like our transgender siblings have heartbeats or whatever. He came on the podcast a while ago, but uh, whatever. But in the back of his his office, he had a sign that says God is still speaking. And uh -huh. in the line of not being presumptuous, I think that God reveals God's self to us through all sorts of things right god is still speaking in our and our experiences are are the 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 operating software for which we understand our you know god right god comes into our experience or or is there already depending on this is getting too deep but but like god in in our experiences are are a thing that come together and i love that that open and relational theology provides validity to that because yeah, like yeah. you can say you can say i'm not a gay christian but i'm going to say you're crazy Right. <laughs> like you, you can argue rights or wrongs. This is another, this is an early part of my deconstruction. Perhaps one of like maybe step three is you can argue the rights or wrongs of gay Christians, but you can't say I don't exist. Like, yeah. hi, you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> and now that I'm healed a little bit, my position towards the church is you've got to deal with me. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like like you you can hate me, love me or hate me. You've got to deal with me because I can quote the scripture as well as you can, maybe even better. Uh, when people try to argue with me about if it's okay to be gay and Christian, and then they try to quote the King James version at me, I'm like, hold up, you think the Bible was written in English? Like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> I don't care, love me or hate me, you cannot just deny my whole existence. Yep. Maybe yeah, I'm demon possessed. Right. Maybe that's how you deal with me. Maybe I'm evil. That's how you deal with me. Maybe I'm delusional. That's how you deal with me. But I'm here. You got to deal with it. And I like that you're yeah. that and I say you're, but I like this that this understanding of open and relational theology gives some sort of validation and 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 sanctification to our experiences as yep. sentient beings who have equal access to divinity. Yep. Yep. Well put. I had to say. By I, the way, was that? Uh, was that Clackamas pastor, Adam Erickson? Yeah, Adam Erickson. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I've guy. preached for his church uh, via, well, early part of the pandemic. Oh, yeah. that's so cool. I was just on, um, he came on my podcast. He's like maybe the second or third person. Listen, uh, I, I've thrown out Hail Marys. Barack Obama has been invited to my podcast. Oprah has been invited to my podcast. Like the worst you. thing people can do is say no. But the first Hail Mary I threw out was Pastor Adam and he like came on and it was dope. And we started uh, this friendship um, and he's had me on his podcast twice. Like we're, we're he's good. a cool Oh, yeah. yeah, I really dig them. It's it's kind of funny when you run into people who know people and the internet makes yeah. that even more possible. So, 
Well, thank you so much, Thomas. I can't, I, there's no words for me to express how much I appreciate your willingness to just have a candid conversation. I frequently prefer them to, to scripted ones, even slightly scripted ones, because um, part of the reason I chose the word conversations is that in, if you look up the definition of conversations, this is such a standard pastor move, like let me look up the definition and then <laughs> preach on it. Um, <laughs> I love it. Died in the wool pastors, kid. But if you look up the definition of conversations, it talks about how communication between one or more people or parties, um, in verbal and nonverbal, and it, the the what comes after the comma is that it must proceed at least in some part spontaneously. And I love the beauty of the spontaneity that comes out in a conversation. And Me that's too. why that's why I called conversations conversations because it's not planned. There's no prerequisites. You just show up. Um, yeah. so thank you for showing up, and I appreciate it's been the work. Yeah, you've it's done. been my it's been my honor. I've really enjoyed our time together. Good. Well, we'll have to make it happen again for sure. I, I know I'm going to be in your inbox about open and relational theology because I'm reconstructing yeah. and I'm trying to get that doctorate eventually. So I got give me three yeah. years. We'll, we'll know what's up. But I'm just going to provide a uh, little quick outro and then we'll then we'll say goodbye. So um, for everyone that's been watching, this is Conversations. Um, we desire to come together regularly and intentionally to have spiritually minded conversations about life. Don't get it twisted. Spiritual is just anything that you can't taste, taste, touch or see. So no matter who you are, there's space for you at this table. And no matter what questions you have, this is a safe space to bring them up because we're going to meet you with love and compassion every time. And if we don't meet you with love and compassion, whoever came at you sideways is getting kicked out. <laughs> that is the only prerequisite. Um, you might have noticed that I have a conversations hat on right now. If you go to conversationsofficial.com, you can pick up some conversations merchandise. What's dope about the conversations merchandise is that all the money that comes in is going to allow us to make conversations accessible to a wider group of people by funding transcription and captioning services so that we can access, be accessible to people um, who have hearing difficulties. Currently, we're accessible to a lot of people, but we don't have any platforms that are accessible to people who have a hard time hearing. So if you happen to purchase some Conversations merch, uh, we can get that popping. If you have any questions for me, you can drop them at conversationsofficial.com. You can slide into my inbox on Facebook. I'm here and I'm accessible and I don't have all the answers, but I definitely have the compassion um, Thomas, is there a way that folks can get in touch with you if they'd like to speak with you more or follow your work? Sure. Uh, I have a personal website. That's my full name, Thomas J. Ord, and you spell my last name, O-O-R-D. You could also uh, just Google Op Center for Open and Relational Theology. Um, I'm pretty accessible via social media. So if you look very hard, you can probably find my email address or just send me a, a, a private note. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on, Thomas. Thank you, everybody, for watching um, live. And for those of you who are going to watch on the replay, thank you for being a part of the conversation. It would just be me talking a lot if you weren't here. Everybody, thank you so much. Have a good day. And most importantly, go Bills. <laughs> Have a good day, everybody. This has been the Conversations Podcast. Thank you so much for joining. If you have any questions or comments or just want to get involved, feel free to join the conversation on social media. You can find us at Conversations Official on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And please don't forget to rate, follow, and share this podcast. We're available on Anchor, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Thank you so much for joining the conversation. This has been the Conversations Podcast. Thank you so much for joining. If you have any questions or comments or just want to get involved, feel free to join the conversation on social media. You can find us at Conversations Official on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And please don't forget to rate, follow, and share this podcast. We're available on Anchor, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining the conversation.